Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric Jean Mayer, the former Division Chief for Identity Records and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service in the Homeland Security Department, who recently just became the CEO of Finality, a security engineering services firm. Jean Mayer joined me before he left USCIS in May. Eric, welcome back to the program in many ways. Glad to be back. Thank you. This is, in many ways, a follow-up from an interview we did back in 2017. It was after the ACT-IAC Igniting Innovation Awards, which E-Verify won a big award for. And at the time, you laid out kind of why you guys went to the cloud and all the benefits of going to the cloud. And then you left me, I won't call it quite a cliffhanger, but you left me with, hey, here's our plans going forward. And in, in, in many ways, this conversation is to follow up from, hey, here's all what we said we'd do, and here's what we're doing. So let's start with the, the beginning, I guess, E-Verify. Just give me the 30-second the reminder of what it is and where you guys are at with the development of it. Uh, when we started back at the, the ACT-IAC, it was really, we were just in, in pilot. And, and the Verify program is a service we offer to the public where employers come to us to say, hey, is this person eligible for employment? Yes or no? And then we go back and validate their immigration record or send them off to the Social Security Administration if they are a citizen and come back and say, yep, this individual passes our snuff test. Yes, they're eligible for employment in the country. And in the process of that, we, we do about 60 or so million cases a year for E-Verify. It's a very large, popular program, uh, and it's only growing in popularity every year. Uh, so back at the ACT-IAC, we uh, had several modernization goals that we were very eager to kick off. And we had roughly a year under our belt. And we had really just wrapped up our first initial two pilot projects, uh, our first pieces of modernization. One was our SBS application. The other was E-Verify enrollment. But at this point now, to go even further into the future, now we're another roughly year and a half into the program, we have modernized the end-to-end E-Verify case management piece, the real uh, bread and butter of E-Verify. So when individuals submit that employment case, it goes all the way through our modernized, more modular application to vet someone's uh, um, employment eligibility and comes back and gives the response. So uh, one of the goals out of this program that was kind of the teaser was our desire to make the application more scalable. At the time, we were we were dramatically struggling with our ability to scale, and we had two major concerns with scalability. One was just our growth at the time, just for doing you know routine business growth year after year. We were already having problems accommodating large traffic spikes where we might have had like a three-day weekend. Uh, so we, we needed dramatically to improve that problem. And two, there was a lot of talk of legislation around mandatory verify. So the combination of, of those two items really made us rethink the architecture of E-Verify and, and kind of landed us to needing to, A, put E-Verify into the cloud, uh, and leverage the elasticity of the cloud for us to scale up in a more horizontal fashion rather than us having this 
all-in-one application that's vertically scaling, meaning we'd have to basically rip it out and replace it with a bigger server every time we need to be able to handle a large traffic lake. So not really very cost-effective. Uh, and also, we were at pretty much the maximum we could handle under that architecture. So what we did is we started to break apart this application in the strangler approach fashion. We would take out pieces of functionality bit by bit, and now here we are today, and all of the, the bits that make up case processing are now modernized. So we never uh, really got a chance to try out or, or do anything beyond a simulation for testing our potential throughput for the new modernized system. Most of our tests so far have just been through simulating traffic through a tool called JMeter, uh, where we have effectively shown that we could scale uh, numerous fold-up in traffic, but have never actually had the opportunity to take on a very large number of real cases in production uh, at, at a magnitude larger uh, threshold than normal. So in and around December, we got faced with a very unique challenge, a challenge I don't think that anyone was really expecting was the government shutdown. Or maybe we were expecting the shutdown, but not so much the IT implications of a shutdown uh, when it comes to the government. So you verify being appropriated, we had to turn off the service. So all the employers across the country were locked out of E-Verify. So while they're still going on with hiring individuals and the need to hire individuals across the country has not changed, meanwhile, they cannot run these individuals through the system to validate employment. So a lot of the employ employers across the country are starting to accumulate a bit of a backlog uh, of cases. And normally, at through historic shutdowns, we've only gone a couple of days or at most a couple of weeks. Um, but here we are day after day, that caseload is growing. So when we finally got back to turning the site back on at the end of our 35-day shutdown, we ended up processing that week in the neighborhood uh, of over 2 million cases just in the first week. Now, to put that in perspective, we normally do about and on an average week, maybe half a million cases, uh, and it could fluctuate depending on the time of the year, but roughly around that time of year, about half a million cases, so a very dramatic jump for the week. But then even more uh, impressive is right when we turned the system on, that first Monday business day back, we had a peak of 1,500 cases per minute. And whereas a normal uh, time frame, we would roughly only have about 100 to 150. So really at best, you know, we're talking uh, 1,500 versus only 100. That's a 15-fold increase in the amount of traffic. Now, the system, we were able to handle that uh, without issue. The system was very stable the entire time. Uh, so that was great. It was a great example of us being able to continue to provide value out to uh, our employers and, and have a very nice, stable government service for the public, uh, despite us having that very large shutdown period. There's a lot to unpack there, so let me hold up for a sec before you, you, you talk about the, the way you did it. First of all, mm -hmm. the number of cases that you had, as you said, a 15-fold increase, about 1,500 cases. Did you know heading into 
when the shutdown was going to be over. I mean, we, we all got a sense of when the shutdown would end. But did you guys have to do something to prepare for the end of the shutdown? Meaning, once you saw maybe the president and Congress coming together on that Friday before, did you call your cloud provider? Did you start, like, what was the process by which, one, you saw the backlog increase, and two, how did you start to prepare for handling that backlog? We actually started a bit sooner than that. But the, the technical piece of that preparation was as simple as a few minutes of us scaling up additional servers. And now that's, that's kind of the boring part of the discussion. And, and also the, the easiest part of the discussion was the technical one. Now, the challenge more so was us trying to estimate, you know, what we needed to scale up the application to. Now, every day the shutdown loomed and, and continued was another day we had to add into our calculations. And you know, for the most part, our website customers uh, we weren't very worried about that. Most employers only have uh, a, a very fixed number of dedicated staff to run people through E-Verify. They weren't going to go out and magically train and hire new individuals to, to kind of scale their caseload through E-Verify. So we weren't worried so much about the website, but we're worried more so about the second aspect we have with E-Verify, which is our API or our web services environment. So a lot of our large customers have built their own software to interface with E-Verify. So say they might have a, a much larger HR system and one of those aspects is running a new hire through E-Verify. You know, that's all on their side. Now, during that 35 days, business is usual for those uh, large customers. And they have roughly 35 days worth of hires queuing up inside their system. And the second we turned it back on come Monday, we now have that queue starting to drain with thousands upon thousands of cases that needed to be run. So it was actually very interesting uh, with us creating more of the model of, of what we thought the, the data flow looked like into the system. Uh, and ultimately we kind of landed on uh, a conservative number about, we we're expecting about 30 times our normal traffic load. So we overshot that a bit. We ended up with 15, but I think we wanted to make sure that we were absolutely comfortable uh, when this would come on, that we'd be able to handle it. And I think we were kind of spot on there. We did. And um, you know, the system was ultimately very stable the entire time. So when you guys have to spin something up, is, is that built into your cost? Because there's no way to plan that, hey, we're going to have this spike in February, or we're going to have this spike in January, or, or is that built in, like you have a certain ability with whether it's AWS or Azure or another cloud provider that they can spin up fairly easily without worrying about, well, did we pay for this spin up today or do we have to pay for it later? Or, or how, how does that work? I think this is one of the things that really benefited us versus being in, in say, a data center is the, the cost leveled out. Since we were mostly down during the, the shutdown, we weren't using a lot of compute power uh, during the shutdown, whereas we did process ultimately the same number of cases just in a very concentrated period of time. So whether we used a, a large number of, of compute resources when we came back online and, and fewer before, in the end, the cost pretty much uh, negates itself. So uh, I think that's really the, the value proposition of the cloud is using that throughput when you need it and turning it off when you don't. 
so this is exactly why you know, doing something similar in, the, in a data center would be inherently very cost prohibitive. So if we get that same scenario, we would have had to ultimately buy hardware all the way up to our absolute maximum peak load uh, to do the same thing, but then there is no turning it off. You know, once you've bought that hardware, it's yours, and you've kind of sunk that cost already. I think that's the key word there, sunk costs, right? That's why the cloud is so attractive to so many agencies because they don't have that sunk cost piece. We have to take a break. My guest is Eric Jean Mayer, the former Deputy Division Chief for Identity Records and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, who just recently became the CEO of Finality. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric John Mayer, the former Division Chief for Identity, Records, and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service in the Homeland Security Department. Jean Mayer recently became the CEO of Finality. So walk me through some of the process by which you, you, you made the decisions, you know, as, as you worked through that backlog, you had some concerns about we, whether the traffic load would be 30 times the normal, but it was ended up being 15. And then you had the, the numbers of, of cases per minute was, you know, 15 times as much cases per minute. How'd you deal with it? How nerve wracking, I guess, was it for you guys at USCIS as, as you saw things starting to get processed and you know, would the system hold up, right? Would you have a, a meltdown of sorts? Luckily, we did not have a meltdown, so we did, we did have our war room going. We had representatives from all of our different teams there in the room, and I think the, the one thing that really kept us able to, to make quick reactions and, and be there to react to what was going to happen that Monday uh, is that we had great operational monitoring available to us. So... Uh, something we've learned over doing numerous deployments is being prepared to really watch the data as it comes in and being less reactive and, and more proactive. Uh, that way we understand what's happening in the system and can kind of react in real time. So say if we weren't hitting our target, you know, in terms of performance, we could then react and, and potentially scale up. Or if we're necessarily uh, bombarding one of our downstream data partners, we can recognize that and throttle back some of those connections. And, and we did do some of that activity while we were there in the war room monitoring in real time. But I think a lot of that didn't end up being quite as nerve-wracking since we did have a lot of the operational monitoring there in place. So, for example, the, the terminology of cases per minute, it, it's, it's almost very business-driven. Business so a lot of the activity we've done over the last year is to really go back and, and make sure we're monitoring the correct things. In case in point, we used to talk about scalability and the number of users we could handle in the system. Now, in this example, it wouldn't really matter so much how many users we had, given my example of one API user for one company is now putting in a, a much larger volume than usual. That doesn't really line up with our definition of users per minute or, or concurrent users. So really, we kind of redesigned and, and really thought about what we needed to monitor in terms of the health of the system beyond just your usual suspects of, of CPU utilization and memory and storage and things like that. But what's really the health of the data flow through the application? You know, where's the current bottleneck? You know, what is the health of our downstream partners? And I think without that monitoring, you're right, we would have had a very nerve-wracking day or week uh, their post shutdown, but 
luckily the entire time we felt very much in control and had a very good idea of the health of the system. I think that's a great example of why agencies, as they move to the cloud, they're finding, you know, it's not all about the cost savings, which a lot of people like to focus on, but it's that additional capabilities, your ability to say, okay, turn this up or turn this down, or, or here's the problem in real time, let's fix it. Walk me through some of the actions you took, if you can remember that day and then that week. Was there certain times of the day or certain times where you were like, okay, we need to turn that up, let's get it done, and then if so, how long did it take? Or there are certain times you were like, okay, let's turn it all down, except for the basics, because we've seen you know people are done for the day. It's 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 five o'clock on the east coast, or now it's five o'clock on the west coast, and people are you know aren't putting people through the system anymore. How how did you monitor the ups and downs, and what did you do? to address the, the spikes in the, in, the, in the valleys? The one tool that we ended up using the most is a feature that we added to the system where it enabled us to throttle uh, our, some of our downstream data partners. So in order for us to make a determination on a case, uh, we might need additional information from external parties, uh, whether that be something like CBP or ICE or SSA, um, you know, driver's license information from inlets, uh, et cetera. Now, in this case, one of our providers was, was able to scale pretty well, but they did have a limit to what their abilities were. So we basically had to enact a throttle in some of the peak periods to make sure we did not uh, totally overload uh, the health of their system. So what we ended up doing there is kind of uh, continuing to queue up on our side when we hit that maximum for that connection. We'd come back and say to our own uh, E-Verify customers, hey, we, we just need a little bit more time to make a determination on your case, case hang in there, uh, we'll have a response back shortly. Um, and then what we did is kind of overnight, every night, would continue to process it pretty much the maximum rate for that connection until we had pushed through all the data we needed to. A, a very another, you know, great technique for us to be able to kind of uh, smooth out some of the traffic so we don't have so many peaks and valleys. Uh, that deployment roughly only took a 30 minutes to deploy, clear our testing, and then and it started to cycle into production. So once again, one of the benefits of, of having a really robust CI/CD pipeline, really robust testing procedures that are automated, uh, and something that's pretty much only feasible in like a cloud environment. Just so I can put a finer point on this and I am clear, if you guys are have a partner, you mentioned CBP or ICE or SSA or whomever, you don't want to overwhelm their systems because you guys can handle, and you know, I'm making this up, 1,500 per minute, but their system can only handle 500 per minute. So if you push through all 1,500, they would potentially, you'd overwhelm their system. So that's what you meant by throttle back. Do I have that right? That's right. Okay, because I think that's the other thing that a lot of people don't consider is that just because your system can handle this much doesn't mean the other systems that you partner with can handle it. Did you have conversations with your agency partners heading into you know the, that Monday when things reopened back up to say, hey, get ready, a lot's coming? We'll talk a little bit about that partnership and the conversations you had. We definitely did some reach out to each of the partners, some of which uh, the verified traffic is, is really just a, a small percentage. Uh, even though it looks like very large volume for us, for them, that it might only be a very marginal difference. And I'd, I'd say that customers like SSA, they handle a very large volume of traffic. So for them, that was is a bit of a non-issue. Same with CBP. Some of the other services, though, it was a very big deal. Uh, so what we did do in the, the weeks while we were in shutdown is we did run some, some return to service type tests in terms of our, our ability to scale. So in 
you know, we, we were running some, some preliminary numbers to see what that end-to-end -end would look like with those those partners as we were approaching return to service. So uh, very great integration uh, in, in communication with our downstream partners. They were all prepared and ready with us. We had them there with us uh, in the war room, some of them virtual and on the phone. But uh, it's very much a collaborative effort. And you're right, it, unfortunately, it isn't just the scalability of one application, but you know, V-Verify and a program like V-Verify has a lot of downstream partners that have to be considered at the table as well. One of the reasons why you're able to handle this backlog and this influx of, of information after the shutdown ended was because you guys used the cloud. Can you give me a sense of what changed in terms of how much more, for lack of a better word, how much more cloud did you need? How big was your cloud? Did you How many more servers did you turn up? How many more instances did you have to turn up? Did you, did you guys have a number? Because it's not 15 times based on 15 times more throughput, correct? I mean, there, did you have to, was there a specific number of instances? Yeah, so that one's a little bit harder to answer. You're right, it isn't, it wasn't a direct one for one. So now that the system is a bit more modular, you know, and uh, each tier of the application may be a little bit different, and, and not every uh, piece of the application has the same bottleneck. So certain portions of the application, we had to add additional resources to, and others might have been fine without us doing really anything to it. So a lot of the the, the web tier, uh, which people usually you know tend to think of for this would be something that they would scale up. Actually, our web tier only required a few additional resources, uh, whereas some of our more complex uh, logic and in, in case matching uh, that happens inside our, our person-centric service, uh, one of the new services that actually I was talking about in a year and a half ago that we were about to embark on, um, that actually required a, a healthy increase uh, to handle the load, just given you know how much uh, of the work it does in terms of matching up case information uh, and so on and so forth. So I wish that was a straightforward answer, but I think really that points to the fact that you really need to understand the the bottlenecks in your application and, and always be actively performing end-to-end -end performance tests to identify them to know where you need to put those resources. So I think if you just blindly increase the size of everything, um, that's not really going to hit the mark on, on what you're trying to achieve here. So in this case, we did know where we needed to put those resources, uh, and we scaled only those pieces uh, to make sure that we could hit the numbers we needed. We have to take a break. My guest is Eric Jean Mayer, the former Deputy Division Chief for Identity Records and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, who just recently became the CEO of Finality. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric John Mayer, the former Division Chief for Identity, Records, and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service in the Homeland Security Department. Jean Mayer recently became the CEO of Finality. Eric, as you guys, if you guys were in a data center, a more typical traditional data center, would you still be dealing with the backlog today? And, and have you pushed through the backlog? Is, is E-Verify up and running like... Like there's no shutdown at all. You've already pushed through all the backlog. <laughs> yeah, I think that one's a, a bit of a tricky question. I could obviously only speculate 
you know, I, I think if we decided to keep pushing through, we, we probably would still be handling some of it today. The problem there being, I think, you know, the data would be mostly useless. I think a lot of the idea behind E-Verify is it being a timely service. Now, if some of these folks were waiting to hear back since December about their employment eligibility, they would have long since given up, you know, waiting all the way until March for their case to come back. So I think we would have likely had to succumb to just foregoing some of the cases. And I think that would really be uh, a terrible thing to the E-Verify image uh, and our reputation is, is the service we're providing. Um, yeah, and I think we likely would have bought additional hardware at our data center as part of modernization if we stayed in the data center. But I don't think we would have ever bought to the level needed to cover this shutdown that no one knew was going to be this long or no one planned for, uh, certainly. So likely, yes, would have had some throughput, but nowhere near what we needed. And I think even then, it really would be just like a, you know, what can we afford and, and what what's that threshold between scalability and cost that's it's really, really prevalent in the data center when you basically have to buy the number of servers to hit peak. You know, there's a lot of lost, uh, you know, CPU utilization there that you're paying for since it's sunk cost. So, yeah, I think that would have been a very tricky scenario and, and one that would have not reflected well on the program. Roughly how long did it take you guys being in the cloud to r run through the backlog? Was it a week? Was it a couple of days? Was it a couple of weeks? By the end of the second week, we pretty much had the entire backlog of cases come through and we processed them. I, really, after the first couple of days, things uh, were at a point where we were very comfortable and, and we knew we could pretty much handle whatever was thrown at us. So, uh, but by week two, after, at the end of week two, we were really starting to hit back into the, our normal numbers. We talk a lot about cloud and, and we talked a lot about the cost savings and we also talk about the you know, flexibility. W what other benefits are you guys seeing through your Verify when it comes to, because you're in the cloud, the flexibility is great and that's why we're talking today, but what, what other cost savings or, or what other uh, cybersecurity savings are you starting to see or benefits? This one is a bit of a, a, a different, you know, I have a different thought on this one. You know, so yeah, we covered scalability and cost, but I think there's a consideration that, that folks don't usually look at when they're considering cloud. And I think this just might be the perspective I have uh, running a software delivery group is ultimately my goal is to deliver software functionality for my business counterparts that have a mission. And, and I only have a, a fixed number of, of team resources to do so. Now, if I have to dedicate a large portion of that team to maintaining hardware, uh, maintaining server operating systems, uh, maybe even maintaining a virtualized platform that, that we're running. All of that takes a, a chunk away of my throughput or my velocity that I can actually dedicate towards uh, delivering business value. So. When, when you look at it a bit like that, uh, it, it definitely makes it a much more challenging scenario when you need to be an expert at everything, when really you'd prefer your team to be able to focus on your, your primary delivery. And I think that's really where the cloud comes in and managed services as well, is you're really abstracting away a lot of those maintenance activities you no longer have to worry about, and then can focus on you know, what you really care about, which is delivering great business value uh, to your customer.
you brought this up several times, which is the uh, DevOps environment that you guys are in. And I know that, for instance, uh, USCS has been known for uh, really moving toward that DevOps environment, the culture. Obviously, E-Verify has major beneficiary of this approach. Talk a little bit about how that approach also fits in with this latest uh, case study, if you will, about why the cloud has benefited E-Verify. Like, give me a sense of, of again, if even if you were in the cloud, but you weren't doing DevOps, you, you may not, you, this backlog, this, this most recent example may still have been very uh, challenging for you guys. Reflecting back a bit on the largest value that I see out of, of DevOps, it's, it's not really a technology problem in my mind, or at least the technology part isn't the hardest part of the challenge. Now, we can definitely spend a lot of resources to, to do what we did and scalability and other things, but without a DevOps culture or an agile development culture that's embraced by the organization, you know, we can have all the greatest tech at our fingertips, but without the business involvement in, in embracing of that culture, we're not really going to be able to hit the mark on what we're trying to deliver. So I would actually say, yeah, the, the most valuable part of, of the culture is us having that great business relationship and that integration of like a business product owner uh, embedded right into our development teams. Uh, so we can make sure that what we are delivering, you know, is something that the business is going to embrace and something they actually need. And, and you really use that technology, the DevOps technology, as a conduit for business delivery. So I, I think I have a bit of a different perspective on that, where I think really culture trumps all in, in terms of the IT uh, technology services these days and cloud offering. Uh, you know, really, I think if, you, if your organization is ready to embrace the culture, I think the technology will follow. Uh, Eric, this has been a, just a fascinating conversation and a great case study of, of the cloud, but not just the cloud, but of you guys' success of meeting mission. Where is E-Verify going over the next you know, three, six, nine months if we have a conversation again, hopefully not in two years? <laughs> but uh, before that, what, what, what's, what will E-Verify like, look like in the next year? One of the other really large focuses I didn't touch on too much about E-Verify is uh, our, our need to process as many employment applications in an automated fashion as possible. So it's really improving that accuracy or system accuracy uh, of E-Verify. And one of the, the large pieces of that that we've been working on over the last year uh, and will continue to embrace this piece of technology, not only for E-Verify, but for, for many other use cases within USCIS is our, our person-centric services. And what this does is really in a nutshell, is our more modern approach to a system that we've had since the 80s, and that was our central index system, the core system of immigration record at USCIS. Now, it was a mainframe application, uh, and the problem with that uh, is that you know, really we're limited by the technology of it, but it, the idea of it, the principle behind it was it for it to be uh, a person-centric system where we can basically take any individual and understand all of the interactions we have with them, what, what uh, progress they've made in their path towards becoming a citizen or, or what benefits they have with uh, you know, the country and, and what immigration benefits they're entitled to. Now, um, what we've done it, with person-centric is really just taken a modern approach uh, to that index. And, and so what we've done is we've brought in roughly a billion 
and, and, and that billion's inclusive of every form uh, or, or benefit we've taken in and granted to an individual. You know, so of course, USCS being very form-based, we have hundreds of different benefit forms, all with their own complications. And what this system does is aggregates all of that information, groups it together by individuals or persons, uh, and, and lets us look at you know person holistically in terms of their interactions at USCIS. Now, why that's important to E-Verify is really E-Verify is just the, the validation that someone has the the status that they that they're claiming they have, and in the case of E-Verify, they're coming and saying, "Hey, I'm entitled to work in this country." And if we have that index already pre-aggregated, we can easily say, "Yeah, we agree." You know, all we have to do is a quick lookup. Whereas in our legacy environment, we were always just doing this on the fly, where we'd have to go out and and through very complicated logic, go through and, and search through all of our different systems within USCIS. And then we'd have to go do some external system calls to check the information over at ICE and CBP, et cetera, and then come back and consolidate a response. Now, this didn't scale well, and it was, it was very slow. So it really drove us into building this first initial use case of person-centric. And the other very great thing that person-centric does is since it knows and it's already grouped all the individuals we've ever encountered, if you came to them you know, and, and say an employer runs somebody that has problems with the information they've collected. So say you're looking to run Jean-Mare Eric, where you basically transposed my name. In, in a very equal matching system, it would come back and say, hey, yeah, I, I don't have uh, Jean-Mare Eric in my system. You know, and basically it would it'd be a manual case. We'd then have to spend resources on to work, all because the name just got inserted backwards and there there are a million examples of this where maybe the the name is typoed uh, or maybe their birth date was international dating versus uh, the u.s standard or, or maybe they missed a digit on the a number uh, and it was off uh, all those things that we can basically take that input we collect and e-verify and say hey score it against every single person we have in our system and tell us what the best match is rather than trying to guess where the problem is. So, for example, you, know, you take John Mayer, Eric, it goes, yeah, uh, yeah the, the best record, you know, with 99.9% possibility is is Eric John Mayer instead. Uh, and we managed to find that record. So it really uh, is a chance for us to dramatically improve the accuracy of the system uh, and as well as not send nearly as many cases to having to be manually researched and processed uh, and, and a lot of time spent there. And I think if we are talking about scaling up this program, it's very important that we can handle a lot of our cases in an automated fashion. So we're going to continue to build on our, our person-centric system. We're also going to release a new version of our web services or API, and that's coming uh, later in the spring. And that will have several usability improvements. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to push on making the site even more usable and, um, you know, really uh, enhance that user experience that we're always talking about. We have to take a break. My guest is Eric John Mayer, the former Deputy Division Chief for Identity Records and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, who just recently became the CEO of Finality. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric John Mayer, the former Division Chief for Identity, Records, and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service in the Homeland Security Department. Jean Mayer recently became the CEO of Finality. All right, Eric, so a lot going on over the next year. One thing that comes to mind is, and USCIS has had a lot of success around this, is as you're using the cloud and moving to the DevOps culture, how are you sharing those lessons learned? Because you're Again, your case study is not one that other agencies don't have the same challenges, right? Other agencies have backlogs in other areas. The shutdown affected agencies, not just from a backlog perspective, but but how to get work done in in a timely manner. How are you sharing these best practices beyond, you know, talking to people like myself? I wish we were doing more of it. We have some really great sharing that's going on within projects at USCIS. I think at this point we probably have a lot of, uh, infrastructure as code and automation that we've we've written over the last couple of years for just about every different flavor of of um, development that there is and every flavor of CI/CD pipeline um, that there is. So a lot of that is, at this point there's there's no really no reason for us to start from scratch now. And that's an example that's true within USCIS. If we have a new project, it's really easy to get jump started with code that already exists. Now, I, I would agree with you. I think there's definitely more to be done in terms of sharing that uh, throughout the government. And while I've had several discussions with other organizations, uh, I, I have yet to see a really broad sharing of code um, across different agencies, which I think really is something that you know we should be open to. And I know USCIS is open to in terms of an efficiency to the government um, and just really a, a jump starter of bringing people into the cloud and that realization that they don't have to start from scratch uh, and, and relearn every lesson that we might already have experience in. And I know that the Office of Management Budget has launched something called code.gov as a way for that type of repository. I know everything's uh, that that's gotten some pickup as well. Is is what's your the other side of this coin is industry as well. I know you guys have some uh, interesting partners and done some interesting contracting work uh, to get those industry partners in. Do you have maybe some advice for for industry as well around uh, this approach, both DevOps and the use of the cloud? Is there something that you'd like industry to to do differently, or or, or any experiences you've had with industry that says, hey, if they only could you know move in this direction, that would really help us too. So I think this one might be uh, a bit early, but another challenge we're starting to face is, well, it's take a couple steps back. You know, a couple of years ago, trying to have industry come in with already a lot of experience in the cloud and a lot of experience with automated CI/CD pipelines was was a bit rare. And I think today industry has stepped up their game and, and brought that to the table. And I think a lot of companies now have that offering. Now what we're looking for is the ability to do more uh, AI and machine learning built right into our products. Now I'll give you an example is, is you know, a lot of the government forms and, and things of that nature are just very complicated workflows where you might have, so take immigration, for example, we have hundreds of forms with hundreds of variants on each form where there are different classifications and and considerations that we have to have. And ultimately you end up with an uncountable number of uh, different combinations that can occur. And I think if you're just coding that 
and we're always in this game of needing to modernize our technology, you know, we're always going to be a bit behind because just the, the sheer amount of time it takes to code out all those if-then statements and, and nuances is just an unsurmountable challenge, even if we are bringing some of the latest technology to the table in terms of traditional development. Now, I think one of the things we've seen to be very promising is bringing in something like machine learning, where instead of coding out every single if-then statement possibility, instead we're coding out more of a framework and training the models based on cases we've already uh, completed, where we could say, hey, usually we need all of this evidence, uh, you know, and here are successful cases and train that into the model. So what the model can do is then reduce the amount of time it takes for us to aggregate all the information we would need to potentially adjudicate a case. So, you know, today a lot of time is spent on us doing, you know, pre-adjudication and all that collection of information and evidence and, and making sure we've checked all the boxes on, on having enough information in our hands to make an informed adjudicative decision. So I think really we could start to move uh, a lot of our development into automating that uh, collection of evidence and, and, and not through a bunch of if-then logic that's impossible to maintain, but through uh, machine learning models that we've trained uh, based on historic cases and information we have, um, and ultimately being far more cost-effective. You brought up AI, you brought up machine learning, and one thing I didn't hear you say is robotics process automation, though you did say automation a lot. Is RPA, does that also have a role in this, whether today or in the future? Yeah, and, and this is just my personal opinion, but I think RPA is in the right direction, but really you'd need that machine learning piece to, to assist with RPA. I think with all of the, complex, of all the uh, complexities of a lot of the government uh, processes, RPA is going to quickly get overwhelmed. So you need something that's a little bit more um, tolerant of, of a very complicated workflow. And I think that's when you start to get into the uh, modeling inside machine learning. That's all the time we have for today. Let me thank my guest, Eric Jean Mayer, the former Division Chief for Identity Records and National Security Delivery in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service in the Homeland Security Department. Jean Mayer recently became the CEO of Finality. Eric, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of.